Well, brethren, if you would, take your copy of the Scripture and turn with me to Psalm 34. Psalm 34. Before I ask you to stand for the reading, let's pray again. Heavenly Father, we come as a needy people to hear from You and we ask for the outpouring of Your Spirit right now to instruct our hearts in the knowledge of the truth and to give us a readiness to receive from You Your sweet, comforting words of truth. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. If you're able, would you stand as we read the Word of God together? Of David when he changed his behavior before Abimelech so that he drove him out and he went away. I bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. O magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt His name together. I sought the Lord and He answered me and delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to Him are radiant and their faces shall never be ashamed. This poor man cried, and the Lord heard him and saved him out of of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints. For those who fear him have no lack. The young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Come. O children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. What man is there who desires life and loves many days that he may see good? Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and His ears toward their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil to cut off the memory of them from the earth. When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. He keeps all his bones. Not one of them is broken. Affliction will slay the wicked and those who hate the righteous will be condemned. The Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in Him, will be condemned. Thus far, God's Word. Brethren, please be seated. Well, Psalm 34 drops us into a particular spot in David's life. He's on the run and racked with trouble. Saul has been obsessed with killing David. He's tried to sink David with with battle with the Philistines. He's tried to impale him with spears. He's tried to surround David's house and capture him. David evaded all those attempts, but now David's on the run, and things are so bad, so dark, David determines, surely there will be one place Saul would never seek me, that is in Gath. That's Goliath, dead Goliath at this point's hometown. David must be really in dire straits to go to that place. Well, the place of refuge soon, soon becomes a prison. The Philistines knew David and his exploits, and they quickly eyed David with suspicion. David feared the servants of Abimelech. That's the regal name for the king. Uh, It's a dynastic name, we might say, much like Pharaoh. It's the Philistine king of Gath, Achish. And David feared that his men would now kill David. In an attempt to escape their scrutiny after being seized, 
David, perhaps you remember, resorted to these strange tactics, pretending to be insane, scribbling on the doors and letting spit drip down his beard. Now, one might think David trusted in his acting skills, and all the more so because it works. But the truth was, David was terrified. Psalm 56 is the darker companion to our psalm, and it shows us David's incredible fear in his pleading for help. He feels oppressed, hunted, one step away from death, And at the thought of that, he weeps. He speaks of God keeping his tears in a bottle. Well, while he confesses in Psalm 56, this I know, God is for me, Psalm 34 celebrates the for me God acting to save. And David teaches us an important principle here. God's answers to our prayers demand praise. Further, our little deliverances, whatever they are, are displays of the kinds of things that God does for all of His people. So when we taste the Lord's goodness, we should teach others of what the Lord has done that they might also trust in Him and praise Him. Well, let's see three things as we consider our psalm together. We begin with declaration and deliverance. David starts with a resolve to declare the praises of the Lord. You see it in verse 1. I will bless... Yahweh, that is the Lord, all caps, at all times or on every occasion. In other words, the covenant mercies of the Lord must never cease from me. I must praise Him in all circumstances. Now it's easy, of course, to have that perspective on the bright side of deliverance. But David is saying after considering the Lord's actions to save him, Yahweh is the with you and for you and listening to you, God, who is always faithful and is sovereign. And even when the night is its darkest, dawn comes with the Lord. He can be trusted and he must be praised in any and every situation. I think David is gaining new perspective on Psalm 31 verse 15. My times are in your hand. So when I'm desperate, I can praise you. And when I've been delivered, I can praise you. In any and every situation, I can praise you because you remain the same. So praise shall continually come out of my mouth. Further, David says, verse 2, my soul makes its boast in the Lord. Now, Normally, we don't think of the word boasting as in any way positive. But here, there's no sense of arrogance. It's a joyful confidence in the Lord, the God who never fails. Is there ever a time when we should lack confidence in our covenant God? No, because nothing can separate us from His love. No one can throw Him off the throne and no weapon formed against us can prosper. God is our keeper, our helper, our deliverer. And in view of His kindness, David is calling on others to join Him in the praise. He says, verse 2, Let the humble, that is the poor or the afflicted, let them hear and be glad. Why should they be glad? Because Yahweh isn't just like this for David. He's like this with all of His people. So, verse 3, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt His name together. You see, brethren, God's mercies are so marvelous. His kindness is so innumerable that just one believer praising isn't enough. It would fall short of what God is due. And don't we have a sense of this in a thousand little ways? I'll give you one example. 
you were almost in a wreck on the way home from work. But by the mercy of God, you avoided disaster. And what do you do? You get home and you tell the story over and over to everyone who wants to hear because you want other people to join with you in the amazement and to give thanks. That's exactly the sense here. But with believers, those delivered not just from a Philistine horde or a wreck on the way home from work, but those delivered from Satan, sin, and death through the Lord Jesus Christ. We must praise. And don't we have a sense of the inadequacy of our praise? How great is God's salvation? It's so great that our praise should never stop. Praise God with me because I was dead in sin and God made me alive. Praise God with me because we both were delivered from the domain of darkness and brought into the kingdom of God's beloved Son. Eternity will never exhaust our praise. But David wants to get to the praise right now. Every moment he's saying, he wants to join with the saints and praise the name of God. Let us lift up praises to God. Let us declare His greatness and His glorious deeds. It's an appropriate call for worship, isn't it? Brethren, do you want to sing praises to the Lord? Are you conscious of what He's done for your soul? Do you stand in awe of His mercy? Do you ponder the mercies that He's given to you? And then do you exclaim the glory of His name? Well, David then transitions from this declaration to description of the deliverance. Now, there are thousands of reasons to praise the Lord, but David says, let me just give you one. Answered prayer. Verse 4. I sought the Lord, and He answered me and delivered me from all my fears. It was a little stronger. From all my dreads or my terrors. Now consider David's situation. He's a weak man on the run. He's scared. He's away from the place of God's presence. That is, he's not in the land of his people at the moment. He's in the land of the Philistines. He's racked with discouragement. He's going from one crisis to another, and he's lifting up his voice in despair. David has no friend in Gath, but he has a friend on the throne, and he seeks him. And the Lord doesn't just listen. He helps. He delivered David from everything David dreaded. The plural there, fears or dreads, indicates, as is often the case with us, that our our terrors or our fears are stacked up like boxes. It's not just that David feared Saul or feared Abimelech or feared Abimelech's servants or feared the fear itself. Do you know that feeling? Sometimes you just fear fear, that paralyzing feeling of blackness. David has a multitude of fears, but in the confusion of David's mind as he's assaulted with various dreads, The Lord entered and helped. He set David free. And now David celebrates the the feeling of this freedom. But he states it as a general principle. Verse 5, he says, those who look to Him, the God who hears and delivers, they are radiant. This is the same word used of Moses' face shining when he goes up on the mountain and meets with God. It's also used in Isaiah 60 of a mother with her face lighting up at the sight of her children. The God who answers and delivers lifts up 
our head. He gives us joy in our countenance so that we light up. And then David states the ultimate result of the shining. Verse 5, Their faces, that is the faces of those who trust the Lord, who seek Him, shall never be ashamed. Now, brethren, we've got to read this verse in light of 2 Corinthians 3, where Paul is describing the glories of the new covenant. Moses had a shining face, but his shining faded away. But we have the hope of glory that will never fade away. We with unveiled face are beholding the Lord and growing into His likeness. We are lit up with Jesus' salvation. And though the darkness remains for the moment as we're in a fallen world, all of that darkness will pass away and we will never be ashamed. We will see a day of no shame and no more humiliation. Every deliverance or every difficulty will be overcome if we look to the Lord. If we rest in our God and His saving mercies, shame will never settle on us. Because if God is for us, who can be against us? David's present deliverance is a little glimpse of the sure salvation for all of God's people. If I use the fancy word, David's deliverance is a taste of eschatological blessing. Last day's glory. Every deliverance should lead us to recognize the day coming for us when all difficulty will be gone. And David tells us again, so we we get it, verse 6, this poor man cried and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all of his troubles. Let the verbs there ring in your ears. David cried, Yahweh heard and saved. What's the implication? If you're troubled, brethren, if you're squeezed, if you're oppressed, if you're feeling the crushing weight of your burdens, what do you do? You cry out. You look to the Lord. You bring your impassioned terrors to God because He can handle your griefs and your dreads. And not only that, He can hear and He can save. Now, let's not forget, we have no idea how long David was in that Philistine prison letting spit drip down his beard. Crying out to the Lord does not mean you will get immediate intervention. Oh, that's the way it was. 1 Peter 5.7 is remembered by most believers, though usually as a sentence on its own, cast all your anxieties on Him because He cares for you. But the truth is, that phrase is a dependent clause. 1 Peter 5.6, Peter addresses God's people in hardship and says, listen carefully, humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time He may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on Him because He cares for you. How do you humble yourself? By casting your cares. But what are you waiting for? That the Lord, at the proper time, not your time, or as Parks put it last week, I liked it. Amazon primetime. That was really good. Not your time, not Amazon primetime, but in God's time because our times are in His hands. Our job is to cry out to God. His job is to deliver when He sees fit. And how do we know He will? Verse 7. David says, because the angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear Him and delivers them. The sense of the Hebrew here is not that the angel of the Lord gives intermittent attention to God-fearers. He's around on occasion, 
Rather, he's always there. Wherever God-fearers go, the angel of the Lord is near with his encampment to guard and to rescue. And this language reflects a scene in Jacob's life. Jacob was fleeing his swindling father-in-law Laban. And as he was going away, Laban was chasing him down. Laban finally catches up with him. And only because the Lord appeared in a dream and warned Laban, don't mess with this guy, does he leave him alone. Well, Jacob then flees out of the frying pan into the fire because he moves from Laban to meeting Esau. A situation wrought with distress for Jacob. And you remember at Genesis 32, he will have that scene alone at night and he will wrestle with a man, which we find out is God Himself. But right before we get to that section, Moses reported, Genesis 32 verse 1, that as Jacob went on his way from Laban towards the Jabbok River, that the angels of God met him, and Jacob saw them and said, this is God's camp. So he called the name of that place Mahanaim, which of course means, you know what it means, right? (laughs) Yeah, Uh, it means two camps. What is he saying? I was encamped, but there was God's camp, the angelic host around me. Well, David's saying here specifically, it's the angel of the Lord camping around God-fearers. Now, brethren, the angel of the Lord is an interesting study, and I don't have time to get into the weeds with you, but here are two facts to remember. The angel of Yahweh is distinct from Yahweh, and yet speaks as God Himself, hence of the Trinity, specifically in God the Son and His concern for His people. So when Hagar is in trouble in Genesis 16, the angel of Yahweh speaks to her and she calls him a God who sees. At the burning bush, Exodus 3, it's the angel of Yahweh who appears to Moses in the flame of fire. It's not hard to make the connection between the angel of Yahweh and the commander of the armies of the Lord in Joshua 5. The sense is Yahweh's angel the very Son of God who commands all the angels is giving constant attention to God's people. And perhaps it's like Elisha and his servant in 2 Kings where the Lord opens the eyes of Elisha's servant and he sees the mountains are full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha indicating that they are present and there are many more for us than for the enemy. Here's the point. If you fear the Lord, if you trust Him and rest in Christ, the Lord Jesus is around you and He will deliver you. Christ is near to us and no one can snatch us out of His hand. This is the guardian care given to all the godly. Does it rouse your soul to praise? The Lord is encamped around us, watching us. Threats may arise against you, but you are safe with the Lord. For greater is He who is in us than he who is in the world. What comfort we should draw from this truth. There's no place we can go as the apple of his eye where the Lord in his presence fails to attend to us. Smash your fears on this truth. And may they lead you to praise. But then secondly, see, David turns to the duties of the saints in verses 8 to 14. The duties of the saints. The Lord's mercies to David are not unique. They are characteristic of how He cares for His people. So David calls the godly to respond. Verse 8, O taste and see 
that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in Him. Now the verb to taste is, of course, used almost always of tasting food. And the idea is having the tangible experience of something satisfying. We don't look at a steak and think that looks good and never taste it. We taste and see that it's good. Well, the saints of God here are bid to make proof of God's goodness by experience. How do you taste God's goodness? You cast yourself on Him and you watch Him evidence that goodness to your soul. You then relish His bountiful care. You drink in His benefits. The notion of tasting and seeing suggests that we move through life looking for Yahweh's goodness and treasuring it. Now, whether you treasure that goodness or not, the fact is Yahweh is good. Goodness, moral excellence, faithfulness, grace, including the forgiveness of sins, they are all found only in the Lord. Apart from the Lord, David said in Psalm 16, I have no good thing. All good gifts come down from Him the one who delights to give good gifts. And while the godless man misses God's goodness, whether in the rain or the the sunshine or the provision of families, they're too caught up in the cravings of the flesh to relish the goodness of the Lord, the believer must not miss it and must rather take it in, revel in the Lord's abundant goodness to His people. Soak in the blessings that belong to those who take refuge in the Lord. Interestingly, Peter quotes this in 1 Peter chapter 2 when he's talking about believers who are to crave the pure spiritual milk of the Word like newborn babies. You were born again through this imperishable seed, the living and abiding Word of God. That's the Word that was preached to you. Crave it if you've tasted that the Lord is good. Brethren, have you tasted that the Lord is good? Do you not have a theoretical understanding of His goodness? Do you have a sense of His peace? The contentment of knowing Him? The joy in the Lord? Because God will never stop pursuing us with His goodness. And then David commands God's people, verse 9, O fear the Lord, you His saints. In other words, worship Him. Be in awe of the Lord and His goodness which compels your obedience. And know that those who honor the Lord will have no lack or literally no need. Powerful beasts like the lions, they may lack, but we who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Now you've got to remember that there's a spiritual context to that statement. Tasting and seeing here is not physically consuming, but spiritually consuming. So the good things that we receive and will be in lack of no good thing must be spiritual in nature. God will provide what we need spiritually. Even the Son of God, the Lord Jesus, in His humiliation had days of want, times when He was hungry and thirsty, times when He was tired. He had no place to lay His head. Do you remember that striking statement? But what He always had until the moment He went to the cross as our sin bearer. What He always had was an abiding communion with His Father. He had Him who is good. If we have the Lord, we have goodness itself. 
We will never be in lack of good. The world may point out to you worldly things that are good in their eyes that we don't have. Riches, physical pleasures, lavish clothes or houses, but we have every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. We are impoverished and yet we are rich. We have nothing and yet we have everything. These are the blessings for God-fearers. Those who don't, who don't merely say they reference God, but actually walk with God. And then David encourages us down this path. He exhorts us, verse 11, Come, O children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. What does it mean to fear the Lord? If you desire life and want to see the good, what will characterize you as God's covenant people? David tells you, this is going to be quoted again in full in 1 Peter 3, in the middle of lots of hard things as God's people suffer. If you want to honor Christ as holy, this is what you do. Verse 13, keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. That's the fear of the Lord. Brethren, we should pause and test ourselves by this list of God-fearing qualities. Those who fear the Lord control their tongues. Is that us? What does our mouth betray of our true allegiance? Is it to the Lord? Those who fear the Lord point their feet away from evil and do good. Is that us? Are we a people who pursue the good? And then do we seek peace? And not only seek it, but, but chase it down. We're not slanderers, liars, lovers of pleasure, those filled with rage, with enmities and jealousies, stirring up quarrels, a people dominated with selfish ambition. We live to honor Jesus Christ even when we're squeezed. We keep entrusting ourselves to Him who judges justly and we wait for His deliverance. We determine to walk in godliness. And if we truly taste the goodness of the Lord, His goodness changes us so that we live no longer for ourselves, but for Him who died and was raised. You know, our boasts of Him as our God are empty if we have only a form of godliness. David is calling on God's people who taste God's grace to walk in godliness. Is that what we're doing? But then finally see this further elaboration on the Lord's detailed care. Detailed care, verses 15 to 22. David began this psalm with the Lord's care for him in a mess. And then he broadened it to the general way the Lord deals with all of his people. But then in the previous verses, David began articulating our responsibilities, telling us, walk like this as a God-fearer. And the question we might have to ask is, why should I walk like that? Well, because of the Lord's goodness. He comes back to explain the motivating cause for our keeping our tongue from evil, our moving our feet to do the good in our pursuit of peace. It's as if he now says, Look at the detailed care that the Lord gives His people. And the stooping love of the Lord here, brethren, is truly mind-boggling. Verse 15, you should memorize this. The eyes of the Lord, that is His careful attentiveness, are toward the righteous. And His ears, His readiness to listen, are toward our cry. 
What a tender image that is of God's care. Isn't it descriptive of how a mother cares for her helpless baby? She's watching that child like a hawk. The eyes of the mother are always there. And there's a cry and she hears it. That's the way God loves us. And think of it, beloved. God is the transcendent, independent, thrice holy God. He needs nothing. He reigns over everything. But He stoops to us with tender concern. He's always bending down His ear to listen to what we have to say. Doesn't that drive you to walk in righteousness? It's not that our godliness earns the favor of God, but our godliness evidences that we have a relationship of love with the Lord. We value Him and we respond to His care of us. The Lord doesn't give this kind of attention to the wicked. He, their prayers are an abomination to Him. Further, we read verse 16, the face of the Lord is against those who do evil to cut off the memory of them from the earth. That's a frightening statement. If you're a godless person, the face of the Lord is set against you and He will destroy you. The godless get curses. But we who love God, who trust Him, who seek Him, we get His attentive care. And that care meets us in our crises. Look at the way David puts it in verse 17. When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. It echoes exactly what David said about himself in verse 6. David cried, Yahweh heard and delivered out of what? Out of all his troubles. That's exactly what David is saying is for God's people. Now here's a question. Does every deliverance from trouble look like what happened with David? That is, we get released from our particular tight spot. We were in a prison and being crazy. We prayed and God set us free. Is that what David means? Every time you're ever in a little tight spot, the Lord sets you free. Well, there are multiple components to an answer here, but it should be obvious to us that tribulations could be faced to the moment of your death. So how can we be delivered out of all our troubles? Well, the answer begins with the next announcement of the Lord's care. Verse 18, the Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Now, in this context, the brokenness of heart and crushing of spirit is as it was with David. It's concerning the crushing circumstances of life. When we are dashed by hardship and opposition, when we feel ashamed, driven to the ground as though we're being squashed like a bug, just then, in the midst of our troubles, where is the Lord? Yahweh is near. David clearly isn't saying that Yahweh's deliverance means trouble will just go away. You just won't ever have any trouble again. No, on the contrary, it's in the midst of oppressive circumstances that we discover the Lord's nearness. Our covenant God, full of steadfast love, gives us a special sense of His presence. That He is at work in our hardship. That He will never fail us. Isn't this how Joseph got through his hard circumstances? You remember what happened with Joseph? He's thrown in a cistern by his brothers. He's sold off. He ends up working for Potiphar. There he's accused of molesting Potiphar's wife. He's thrown in prison and forgotten. But during that whole ordeal, 
Genesis 39 says four times Yahweh was with Joseph. He could later say to his brothers, what you meant for evil, God meant for good, because he tasted God's goodness and nearness in the thick of affliction. But this nearness, I think, goes beyond a a particular awareness of God's presence. The word near is used in a very interesting way in the book of Ruth. And it focuses on the one near to redeem. That is, Boaz is willing to be near and to take the troubles of Ruth and Naomi upon himself. His nearness is reflected in his readiness to rescue. Our God doesn't merely come close to uphold us in trouble. He acts for us. He takes his bur- our burdens upon His shoulders. And then we get a restatement of the claim in verse 17 with even stronger language in verse 19. Many are the afflictions of the righteous. Again, you're going to have trouble. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers Him out of them all. And the deliverance is very specific. He, verse 20, Yahweh, keeps all His bones. Not one of them is broken. Now there are two ways to understand this passage, this statement. First, David could be poetically depicting the care of God to be so specific and careful, not even a bone will break. And in this view, the claim is not literally that a godly person will never break a bone. You'll you'll never trip and break your wrist. You'll never wreck your bike and break your leg. No, it's metaphorical, and it's rather like the promise that Jesus gives the disciples in Luke 21. He's describing the troubles they're going to face in the days to come. Days when there will be wars and famines and pestilences and times where believers are seized and persecuted. You will see members of your own household handing you over, and some of you will be put to death. And then Jesus says immediately after that, not a hair of your head will perish. How can you die? and not a hair of your head will perish. Well, clearly the perishing there is reference to the state of the soul. It's no doubt echoing the promise that if we believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, we shall not perish but have eternal life. David could be describing this deliverance in that sense. We'll face all kinds of trouble, but our hairs, like our bones, they won't be shattered. We won't be abandoned. The deliverance is spiritual in nature. But there's another way to read this. It's maybe a both and here. It's hard to listen to verse 20. He keeps all his bones. And fail to remember the scene in John 19 when the soldiers sought to hasten the death of Jesus and the others on the cross. You remember what was happening. How how is death hastened for those crucified victims? You break their legs so they can't breathe anymore. But when they came to Jesus... He was already dead, confirmed by the thrusting of the spear into His side. Jesus had laid down His life on His authority at His time because no one takes His life from Him, as He had already said. But John comments specifically that the soldiers didn't break Jesus' legs, that the Scripture might be fulfilled, not one of His bones will be broken. Now there's a debate about the text quoted there. Is it talking about the Passover lamb? whose bones won't be broken? Or is it a quote of Psalm 34, verse 20? Yes. 
I think it's impossible to read this verse and fail to see the connection to Jesus. And brethren, here's the crucial tie for you and me. Our deliverance is assured because Jesus, our kinsman redeemer, the one who came near to us to take our burdens on His shoulders, He was delivered. He faced the fury of affliction but satisfied the justice of God. And His subsequent victory where the curtain was torn and the grave was shattered and the devil was defeated, that means we shall be delivered from all of our troubles because we are in Christ. And here's the glorious conclusion to the psalm. Affliction will slay the wicked and those who hate the righteous will be condemned. But, verse 22, the Lord redeems the life of His servants. None of those who take refuge in Him will be condemned. The wicked get condemnation. What do you get? No condemnation. It's not that we have ceased to sin and don't deserve condemnation. We're still dealing with wretchedness within, aren't we? And who saves us from the wretchedness? Jesus. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Beloved, this is the detailed care you get. You get Christ. You get the very indwelling presence of God by the Spirit. You get resurrection where you will escape all your troubles because His resurrection is our resurrection. Isn't God good? Isn't He worthy of praise that He would take us, these frail creatures of the dust, unite us to Christ and raise us up? He is worthy of all adoration and honor. May we walk away from Psalm 34 and say, Ho, taste and see that the Lord is good. Let's exalt His name together. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come abiding in the hope that You give us of an ultimate deliverance through Jesus Christ. Praising You that Your goodness and mercy shall pursue us all the days of our lives until we dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Lord, we thank You that You are attentive to us, that Your eye watches us, Your ear listens to us, and we thank You, O Lord, that You care about all of our particular afflictions so that we, like children, can run to You, cry out to You, and know that You will come near to bear our burdens. O Lord, You are such a gracious and good God. May all of our fears, the multitude of them, be shattered on the rocks of this truth of Your character. And may You stir up our hearts to love You, praise You, and invite others to join with us in praising Your glorious name. For we pray these things in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and all of God's people said, Amen.